Hi, my name is Ben Atkinson, host of the Functional Health Podcast. I'm trained in both biomedical science and nutrition, and I firmly believe that a holistic and functional approach to health is fundamental to our well-being. I interview some of the leading voices in nutrition and lifestyle medicine, from practitioners to professors and everyone in between. With this podcast, I will share with you their stories, their expertise, and their advice, shedding light on the industry from each of their perspectives and providing you with simple tips and tricks to help improve your health from today. This week, I'm delighted to be speaking with Toral Shah. Toral is a scientist, chef, clinician, and founder of The Urban Kitchen. She inspires people to eat healthier with real food and delicious recipes. Toral is now working on her first book, explaining the science behind cancer-preventing foods. In this episode, we dive into her own personal journey with this disease. So, without further ado, Toral, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, Ben. So, Toral, for people who aren't familiar with you, what has led you to where you are today? It's a long story, but I've always been really passionate about health and well-being. And it all started from reading a book when I was 10 years old um, about a cancer surgeon. And then I decided at that moment, that's what I wanted to do. I wanted to work somehow in medicine with cancer. So to cut a really long story short, I ended up at medical school, um, found it quite hard and challenging. And my mum then actually had breast cancer um, back in 1999. And I saw firsthand what the job of an oncologist actually did. And that was why I went to medical school, to do oncology, yes. to study oncology. And then I realized it, it's a really emotionally difficult job, but also you have to, to really separate yourself from the patients, yet help them in the same time. For me, personality-wise, it wasn't something I'm very good at. I'm not very good at separating myself. I'm quite empathetic. So I started to think, why am I doing this? Why are we waiting till people get sick? Why don't we start looking at how we prevent cancer and all these other diseases? So I kind of fell out of love with medicine and left to medical school, worked in research for a while, worked in the city, and I kind of came back and did a master's in nutritional medicine and realized that there's a real thing about preventative medicine where we can look at lifestyle, nutrition, exercise, and all of these things. So we can actually help prevent chronic disease, whether it's cancer or heart disease or diabetes. So that's what brought me to learn more about nutrition and kind of to this point where we are now. So how has learning about these kind of nutritional protocols changed your life? I think I was already a healthy eater. My parents are pretty healthy. We've always been really active. So I think what actually I've learned is that there's lots of myths. There's lots of things that we all believe um, which are true and which are not true. Um, and I think it's about really looking at the combination of how we eat things, when we eat things. There's so much information out there, yet we still know the tip of the iceberg as far as how nutrition actually affects our long-term health. And we have to look at all these long-term epidemiological studies and study people for a long period of time. I think that we're still at the infancy of understanding how nutrition can um, really make a difference to us. And we've learned so much in the last sort of 10 years. When I first started looking into this back in 1999, everyone sort of laughed at me and there was very little information. There were studies that are taking place and long-term studies, but the results hadn't come out for those yet. So I think when I think about in the last 20 years, the world's changed a lot and we are starting to understand that 
what we eat um, and when we actually does have impact on our health. Yes, absolutely. I couldn't agree more with that. And especially the fact that we're at the, the tip of the iceberg. But I also people think, oh, well, you don't know very much from for such a big topic. But I think that's more exciting than anything because there's so much more to discover. Absolutely. And I think the, the problem is that traditionally nutrition was sort of seen as almost a woo-woo subject. And so when I left medical school, I was like, what do you mean you're doing nutrition? <laughs> and what's really interesting is the same people now like, oh, you were so ahead of the game. You really got it. And loads of my friends who are obviously doctors and consultants now are like, oh, now we start to get it. And they don't have even the basics of nutrition because when we were in medical school, we had five hours of lectures and that hasn't changed much. And I know there's loads of cafes, there's Rupee of Doctor's Kitchen and so many other people trying to change NutriTank, trying to change that and bring more nutrition and lifestyle medicine into you know, medical schools and universities. But when you think about where doctors are at now and the people that are maybe at consultant level and above, um, they haven't had that training. So for me, it's always a conversation that some people are quite interested in, but some people just think that you're talking rubbish stuff. And that's really sad because actually there's so many studies to show that it's a completely different situation than what we first believed. We're kind of shifting to, towards uh, integrating these practices. And certainly the lifestyle medicine movement has definitely influenced that. And as you said, Rupee is one of them with his culinary medicine approach. And you especially, showing how that food can influence um, your health, but also making it accessible as well. You don't have to be a chef to cook well and eat well. No, I don't. I think you do have to think about it in advance, and you do have to prepare. I think most people um, in this generation are something very used to picking up something from the shops or restaurants or wherever, eating, you know, not really thinking about what they eat because it's already made. And I think when you think about our parents' generation – there weren't those things available. There weren't wasn't ready-made food. There weren't you know just all these more casual dining you know some concepts around. So it was eating out was either you went somewhere really fancy or it was literally McDonald's. There was nothing in between, and so that's changed how we eat so much more. Um, if you think about back sort of a hundred years ago, only sort of two percent of meals were eaten outside the home, and now. I would say I think the latest statistics are at least 60 or 70 percent of meals wow. eaten outside the home. Um, and I think obviously that's going to influence uh, the nutrient intake because when you eat out, there are just less vegetables in the food. Um, <laughs> unless, even if you're having a salad. you know. So I think it's, it's just the way that society has changed. We've become so busy and we've um, not really focused on our food. So when you think about previously i think there were statistics that said that we spent 11 percent of our salary on our kind of food and now we probably spend as a percentage a lot less but then we're eating out a lot more so it's easy though at the same time to spend so much money if you're eating out pick up a coffee then you pick up a croissant mm-hmm. and you pick up a lunch some sort of lunch from somewhere and then maybe a snack and that's before you've even got home you've easily spent 20 pounds yes you maybe haven't had that many nutrients yet so I think that's where planning and thinking about a little bit in advance um, becomes very important. That doesn't mean you can't eat really interesting, delicious and fun food. It doesn't mm. mean you can never eat a burger or a cheese or a cake. You can <laughs> a little bit more and think about the 80%, 20% rule. So 80% of the time, eat healthy, nutrient-dense food and 20% you know, have what you want to have. Um, and I think that's where we've sort of probably fallen off the bandwagon a little bit and with 
all the ready-made and fast food options that we have available to us now. Yes, and I think that 80-20 rule is so important, or at least the idea of balance, because a lot of people go on these diets and and the, by definition, just a short period of time where you eat a certain way, and you tend to find people restrict everything and then binge afterwards, rather than have this idea of, that you can have a chocolate bar because you've eaten so well. I think that's the thing. I think it's about teaching people. They're also incredibly disassociated from our food. Mm. Uh, we use food so emotionally. It, that includes me. And until we start to address children being a lot more involved with food, understanding how they eat, and parents understanding what to feed their children, it's going to be really hard to really get balance. Because at the moment, people aren't sure what to eat. And there's sort of ends up being people, as you said, being really, really overly healthy, maybe, and not understanding that they can allow some, you know, fats and some, like, treats and some chocolate and things like that. It's all part of a balanced diet. It's not about completely restricting yourself. But at the same time, it's not about, I think, you know, having just complete fast food and junk food all the time, because it affects not just your physical health, but also your mental health, too. And I know that something happening on television at the moment where they got some celebrities to eat a junk food diet for three weeks. I don't know what the results of that because I'm not sure if the show has been out yet, but apparently it affected not just their physical health, but also their mental health. And that was just three weeks. People often refer to nutrition as something which can change their physical appearance. And indeed it can, but we know that it has an undeniable link to chronic disease as well. Can you explain why implementing a good nutritional program for people with chronic illness is so important? Well, firstly, chronic disease, such as heart disease, diabetes, even cancers, it's built up over a long time with changes of the body. So when you refer to the fact that um, the nutrition and diet can make physical changes to your body, that's not just aesthetically, but it's also internally as well. So as Hippocrates sort of once said, um, the root cause of disease is inflammation. And when you think about chronic disease, um, Inflammation is often quite linked to that. So, for example, with cardiovascular disease, there's, you know, atherosclerosis builds up and blocks the blood vessels. And one of the risk factors for this is a diet high in saturated fats that's low in fiber um, and maybe high in sugar, not because sugar's uh, a problem, but because that affects your hormones and affects, obviously, if you're overweight or obese, then that will affect some of the inflammation that's in your body. So I think... We're starting to understand this now. I mean, there were some really great statistics um, where they looked at how deaths were attributed um, for chronic disease in the USA. And 19.1% of all deaths were attributed to diet as being one of the risk factors because of whatever disease a person ended up with. And I thought that was really interesting, especially because you know, over two-thirds of Americans are overweight or obese. Yes. We're not that far behind in the UK. Europe is definitely a lot better than we are, but the UK is kind of edging up over 50%, which is really quite scary. Um, And if we look at these long-term epidemiological studies where they look at a vast population of people for a long time and sort of look at what they've eaten over 10, 15, 20, 25 years, we can start to see the link between what people have been eating over the years and how that might increase their risk of disease. And high cholesterol and high blood pressure seem to be common conditions in today's society. Uh, Do you think we can manage or reduce the risk of these conditions through appropriate nutrition? 
I think so. Obviously, there's some people are going to have some sort of gen- genetic element, but partly yes. that's genetic because of the way their parents ate as well as, and so, you know, that's what's happened is that they've grown up eating that way. Mm-hmm. Um, I think with, for example, cholesterol, it's not about necessarily not eating cholesterol, but it's about eating more fiber, more of the soluble fiber. So if you eat more oats, there's loads of studies to show that eating oats is really great for helping reduce um, cholesterol. Eating more plant fiber from vegetables and fruits helps to reduce cholesterol. So absolutely, I think by having a balanced dietary approach to this disease, we can definitely help to reduce the risk. But it's almost too late when people have already got the disease. I think we have to look preemptively and show people how to eat this way if they feel like they've got some sort of familial risk towards this sort of disease or they've got some of the um, indicators to show that they might be heading that way. It's it's not too late, but it feels a little bit like we're kind of trying to put a fire out with a bucket of water as opposed to a hose pipe if we're waiting till then. And I think that the more we educate people on um, eating a healthier diet, the more we can reduce the risk of people having these sorts of diseases. Of course, if you've been diagnosed as that, it's going to make a huge difference. Mm-hmm. If you get type 2 diabetes and you move to a, a different type of diet, more of a whole foods-based, more for high-fiber, uh, maybe even a higher-protein diet um, and lower sort of free sugars, then it probably will help you, mainly because you're going to be losing weight, body fat. Um, and that obviously helps to reduce some of the... Um, implications of diabetes so there's so many things that we have to look at and obviously i think the one big thing that we forget is that we're all individual we're all genetically apart even with you know twins different and so what might work for one person might not work for another person but there are some things that we can all do such as eating more fruit and vegetables eating more fiber um reducing eating you know processed foods and sugars um and things like that the idea that we're all genetically different is so true. I mean, we, we all have different genes which contribute to how we metabolize different components and macronutrients. AMY1 genes, which are higher in some individuals than others, and they influence how we process carbohydrates and digest them. And even though we have these broad public health messages, which I think are important, you still have to use that as a baseline and kind of moderate it accordingly based on your own individual makeup. Or genetic makeup, I should say. I think it's just not, not just the genetic makeup. Obviously, then we're looking at the impact of the environment and your yes. genetics too. Because maybe me being in London with my genetic makeup is different to if I lived in... And my parents are born in Kenya. So mm-hmm. if I lived in Kenya, there's obviously higher vitamin D levels. Maybe that would be, make a difference. We don't know. So there's the kind of epigenetic factors too. And then there's the nutrigenomic factors, like the quality of the food and how that affects your genetics, but also the cultural society that we're in. Because, you know, if we think about um, how much the world's changed and how we live in different countries now, I mean, what people would have eaten traditionally um, may have suited them in that lifestyle, but maybe not here. Yes. So I think that's something that we also forget. And also like people who are, genetically have been vegetarians for you know many generations are often thought there are studies to show that they're often thought they can extract more protein more you know and more amino acids from a purely vegetarian diet whereas people who genetically have, have always had a kind you know omnivorous diet may find it harder um, because they're not adapted to that so there's so many things we just don't know mm-hmm. um but at the same time a lot of the sort of simple 
rules are I mean partly it's common sense too like you know just just think about what you eat a little bit more but um, partly I think it's got to a point where people are just very very confused and I think we haven't had very clear um, advice the advice that we have from the government is certainly in the UK is slightly old-fashioned Canada's just released a new sort of eat well kind of plate which is actually a little bit more updated with some of the latest research which i think is really interesting but but in the uk we haven't really we're still kind of advising people to eat you know get some 60 of their calories from carbs and starchy you know foods whereas actually given how sedentary people are is that necessary is that what they need uh, or do they need to have more vegetables and more kind of protein and more you know oily fish and things like that so i think again like the world's changed quite quickly there was a really beautiful um piece last summer when we had the heat wave comparing you know 2018 to 1976 when we had the last giant heat wave and if you look at pictures of people on the beach they were very different sizes and you know now we're walking a lot less everything's labor saving mm-hmm. We don't even walk to shops. Children are inside a lot for safety reasons. They're playing with tablets and computers and all sorts of things. Whereas I feel like, certainly for my age, and let's just show you my age, I remember just being outside all the time on my bike and with my you know, friends and my brother. And you know, we'd come in when it was dark. And now people are very scared to let their children do that because we hear more about you know child abduction and stuff. So going slightly off topic, but I think there's a lot more to nutrition than just teaching people how to eat and stuff. I think there's so many cultural societal changes that we've had um, because then that affects our exercise, our lifestyle and all the other things. And we are more sedentary overall. Right now I'm sitting down talking to you whilst I'm recording this podcast. <laughs> and I guarantee you with the rest of my day, I might be sat down most of the time. I'll try and get up as often as possible. But you are right. We are sedentary most of the day just because of the way our jobs work or at least most of, the, most of our jobs. Exactly. And I think that... Even if you're a real gym bunny, you go to the gym for an hour a day, that's still only 4% of the time. And actually, we just need to be moving more. And if you look at the blue zones, which are the areas in the world which have identified with the most kind of areas of longevity, so humans that live over 100 years and things like that, they're often quite um, have low levels of not just physical health problems like you know, hard cardiovascular disease and diabetes and cancer, but they also have lower um, incidence of mental health diseases are Alzheimer's or dementia and partly one of the things is not like they're doing formal exercise but they're just moving all the time and I think that it's something that's changed quite a lot and we need to look at that in in conjunction to our nutrition to our whole lifestyle and also maybe they're less stressed because they're spending more time with family and friends we live in quite isolated lives in the western world where we're kind of either in small units or people are, live on their own or they're, they're, they're just very busy um and so i think that also is something that's quite important there was a not something very recent but i think it was the anthropological studies of western a price so he this yeah person was a medical doctor he was a dentist and he lived with various different indigenous populations around the globe and some of these indigenous populations did not have a word for depression it just didn't exist um which i find incredibly fascinating when now you see it's on the rise but this is all circumstantial obviously but something i feel has to change and we're becoming acutely aware of that no and i i think that i think a we're talking much more about both mental health but also looking at lifestyle and i think so many more um healthcare professionals are looking at how lifestyle not just doctors but nurses mm-hmm. nutritionists all of these people like what else can we do from a lifestyle perspective and and having a more integrative pr- approach 
I just wanted to talk about a topic which is quite controversial. It's the role of nutrition in oncology, with some individuals saying that it has a huge influence on disease outcomes and others suggest it has no effect at all and that you should enjoy whatever you want because life is too short. What is your take on this? So I think that we didn't know a lot about the effect of nutrition and cancer before. And now we're starting to learn things. We've got these long-term epidemiological studies, which people like the World Cancer Research Fund have kind of distilled um, with um, and looked at to see what kind of things we can all do to help prevent cancer. But also as far as actual treatment, you know, what do we need? So I was really lucky. Last week I got to spend some time with um, Professor Daglish, who's based at St. George's, hospital um he is a clinician but he's also done loads of research um and he's done a lot of work in hiv but really in cancer and his take on this was really really interesting he's like the problem is that so many doctors don't see the link and they're not interested in the research but actually why are we having increased um, incident of all these diseases with all the processed food and the difference in lifestyle. Why are we not actually doing more research? And he said he's been doing research, you know, he's been here for like 45 years. And he his view was that we need to look at um, our vitamin D levels more and our diet. And are we eating enough fiber-rich food? Are we avoiding inflammatory food? And all of this has an impact. Um, onto cancer and it is controversial um, he said there is it's actually can determine the outcome of standard therapy and it has been published some of this work but not everyone is interested in it and if they look at the biomarker conferences they look at the impact of nutrition and um, what people are eating and the effect on cancer treatment and one of the things he works on is immunotherapy and yes. um, he he's, he's finding that people who have low vitamin D levels, they're often immunotherapy doesn't work. So until that vitamin D has been corrected, so it's, I mean, we should be above 50 milligrams, um, but a cancer patient might even need to be up to over 100 milligrams. And when their immune system will work better. And then also if they're having immunotherapy, then this will start to work. Until that point, it's not necessarily working. So it's one thing we talked about um, and he was sharing lots and lots of research papers, which I'm still kind of actually um, reading because there were so many that <laughs> perhaps what we need to do is pe- before people have chemotherapy or surgery, we need to think about putting them on an anti-inflammatory protocol for a couple of weeks at minimum. Um, and then obviously stopping a week before um, so it doesn't interfere with blood clotting and you know, anesthetics and, and things like that. But just to help some of these therapies actually work. And I just thought that was really interesting. He, you know, he had so many papers that he quoted, including a lot of his own research. So maybe we do need to be looking at anti-inflammatory markers when people are diagnosed with any type of cancer and then look at what we might be able to do to help them. And some of these things are actually relatively cheap. So um, you know, vitamin, vitamin D, D, test is, vitamin is, D is easy, yeah. Um, maybe maybe not testing some of the other things, but we can even if we looked at people's HbA1c, which is like their diet, kind of where blood sugars have been, it might help us to know kind of have they been eating lots of fruit and vegetables and fiber or not really. Um, so I think there's something to do with that. The other thing is, you know, are there other things that we could supplement with? Um, and not everything can have a randomized controlled study. If we're not doing harm, which is the Hippocratic oath. 
if we're not doing harm, maybe we should be looking at um, non-inferiority studies to see whether if it doesn't do harm, can it help some people? So yes. eating loads of fruit and vegetables, is it ever going to do any harm? No. Okay, some people have got um, maybe some sort of irritable bowel syndrome or some other things where they can't digest some of the different types of fruits and vegetables, but although it's not going to, vitamin D, absolutely not. It's been, you know, the lack of vitamin D has been implicated in so many diseases, not just cancer, cardiovascular disease, um, diabetes, Alzheimer's, dementia, depression. Seriously, there's it's, it's not a miracle drug, but it's something that we really need to look at. Um, and then things like, there's things which are on the sort of sidelines, like curcumin, which is the active ingredient in turmeric, bromelain, which is uh, kind of the anti-inflammatory molecule in pineapple, green tea. And there's definitely studies around those sorts of things. But that's also going to the next level. So maybe people don't need to go to that level, but maybe they just need to be having a vitamin D supplement and eating at least 500 grams of fruits and vegetables for a few weeks pre um, any type of treatment. Um, I think that there's a lot for us to read about that. Um, I don't know how you would do a randomized control study because it's not ethical, in my opinion. Yes, that's always <laughs> but, the, the difficulty, I think. <laughs> yeah, but it also, also is not going to harm them. And then when you look at other things, there's you know, um, Adrian Harris in Oxford, for example, thinks that green tea is probably better than Avastin, which is one of the biggest oncology drugs. So, you know, we need to look at this more. And then these amazing doctors and professors who are who've been working on us for a really long time, and there's some people who just don't believe it. And from my own experience of having breast cancer, um, and I'm at the Royal Marsden, which is, you know, one of world-class centre, and they're not quite sure. There are dietitians there, um, and they're very helpful for the people having treatment. But as far as how to help with surgery and chemotherapy and other things, they ha there's no advice really given, apart from have a balanced diet. Um, yes. And I think that we could implement some sort of anti-inflammatory protocol. Um, and the other thing is, that, for example, some of the side effects with some of the drugs, um, for example, if you take tamoxifen or one of the kind of estrogen blocker drugs. Mm -hmm. um, That's for breast and ovarian cancer. Yes. yes. Um, you often, if you're on the younger end, you often will go through medical menopause. Um, and then there are, we don't, they don't really know anything to help prevent that. So from my perspective, I've had breast cancer twice now, and I'm really looking into estrogen metabolism and our estrogen detoxification pathways to understand that if I can help modulate my estrogen levels naturally, then will I have less side effects on these drugs? Because I had a really, really horrible time on them previously, and I stopped after literally seven or eight weeks. And I know I need to take it again, but I'm sort of, hedging around about it because I'm just like I don't want to feel awful because at the moment at least I have a good quality of life even though I'm kind of aware that there's cancer around me I and I think this is the other thing so my doctors are wonderful 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 people my radiologist oncologist and my surgeons and they're like Toral you probably know way more about the subject than we do so please go away and research it and come back and tell us <laughs> hilarious and quite funny but also a little bit sad because that means that there must be other people asking some of these questions and there's no one really answering these questions. Mm -hmm. So we need to do more research. And I know breast cancer now and 
Cancer Research UK and so many other people. I mean, I, I we see that support Professor Daglish are doing, you know, funding this research, but there's so much more that can be done. So what kind of dietary interventions have you used to help you to, or support you, your health through this time? Um, so I, I, if I just explain the timeline, then it might make more oh, sense. So I already started my master's in nutritional medicine in 2004, and I was first diagnosed with breast cancer in 2006, um, by which time I mainly, mostly finished the course and realized I wanted to specialize in diabetes and cancer. So I knew a, a vast amount. My diet was really healthy. I was also training for triathlons. So I was really lean and really quite healthy. So actually, if anything, I became a little bit more relaxed. And like, I've done all this stuff and I still got breast cancer. <laughs> so if anything, I've become a little bit more relaxed in my kind of eating approach. And, uh, and I just enjoy life. But yes. I do think that at the moment, I'm definitely carrying a little bit of extra weight for various reasons. And for me, I know that, that for me, losing that sort of five kilos will help to reduce potentially the risk of reoccurrence again. Mm-hmm. And 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 also body fat the more body fat you have the more estrogen you're kind of storing in your body so um for me that's kind of the angle i'm looking at now for my second you know with my reoccurrence is like okay i need to lose some body fat but maintain my muscular mass but at the same time i need to look at you know because body fat you know is linked to estrogen metabolism so there's that but also it's not just what you eat for me, my biggest thing that I am looking at now is sleep. Yes. I have never been a good sleeper. Um, we no, are starting to understand now that sleep is so important, not just for, for mental and physical health, but like really looking at how our hormones work, not just our hunger hormones, but our insulin, our cortisol, all those things. Um, and for me, I can see that I haven't always had the best sleep or prioritized sleep. And that has probably got a much bigger impact than what I'm eating because on the whole, you know, 80% of the time, I'm eating a lot of vegetables and some lean protein and some oily fish and things like that. And then I do eat cheese and cake and, you know, fun stuff. But <laughs> so I think this is where it's not always just like that. And I think working in a more functional medicine or integrative lifestyle medicine approach, I can see how sleep and stress are really linked and, and how they can impact your health. And I love that. Dr. Chatterjee is spending so much time and explaining the real link between stress and long-term health. And I think that, again, if we look at the blue zones, if these people have got a stronger social kind of environment um, where families all kind of help each other and they've got strong friendships um, and the society allows the time for people to kind of relax and download the day together and things like that, then obviously it's going to make a, a, a big difference to you and your health and well-being. Um, so for me, as an ethos, it's all about being happy and healthy. It's not necessarily about looking, oh, like you could run a marathon, but really, like, I mean, what is health? And that's a question that I'm really interested in. And if you look at the World Health Organization definition, health is not merely the absence of disease, but you know where you have balanced um, physical, mental, and social health. And... We, I've started a new venture, my friend Amy, uh, who's a health journalist, um, called What the Health. And we're literally taking each of these elements of and taking them apart and looking at health in that way. Because we've looked so much at the physical, we've looked at disease, mm-hmm. but we haven't looked at how, the, well, how they all interconnect. Yes. And Absolutely. I think that's important. Yeah, and looking at like health is being optimally vital or your vitality, how you're able to take on each day. And, all, and the other thing I read, again, is it, 
the World Health Organization defines well-being as being a state where everyone's able to be at their ultimate and work to their full potential and can cope with their normal stress of life, be productive and able to contribute to their community. How often do we talk about these things? <laughs> we don't. We don't. And I think this is, I love that the World Health Organization really looking at it in a much more holistic approach. Um, and they look at the science behind the celestial culture yeah, and looking at the science behind meditation and why we need to sleep and things like that. Something which is rarely touched upon is how not only illness, but the illness itself, but the diagnosis affects your mental health and well-being. What has your experience been and can you offer some advice for those people who might be going through the same situation? Absolutely. Um, 100% agree. It does affect your mental health. And it's been something that for me that comes and goes. Um, Having had cancer at age 29, which is quite young, breast cancer, it's been something I've, I've lived with. And whilst I've physically been well for 12 years, I actually never really thought about reoccurrence because I knew that I was doing all the right things. I can see that there was always a small amount of fear at the back of my head. And any type of fear increases your stress levels and potentially your stress hormones. So that's one element of it. From a mental health perspective, when I was 29, it affected me in a way that I felt very much left behind. Um, all my friends were sort of buying houses, getting married, starting to have families. I was, you know, spent a vast proportion of the year having cancer treatment and working out, oh my God, what just happened? Mm-hmm. Uh, I think that it was very hard because in those days there was, whilst there were some things, the like internet and stuff, it was hard to find people that understood. And I was really lucky because I found the Haven, Breast Cancer Haven, and they had a younger women's support group. And actually I'm still friends with quite a few of the girls. Sadly, we've lost um, a few of them. I'm sorry to hear that. But no, no, it's, it's just part of having cancer young, unfortunately. And so I think having other people who really got where I was coming from and could talk about some of the, you know, we used to talk about really hilarious things. Someone would be like, oh, what's the best thing to draw on your eyebrows again? And then they'd be like, oh, how do you talk about sex the first time with someone new when you've had a mastectomy or other life-changing surgery? And so I think having a peer network has, has really helped. And now there's so many more avenues. So there's Trekstop, which specializes in cancer for young people, and Copperfield, and there's, there's more avenues. And there's phone groups. And, and I think I'm on a Facebook group at the moment when people all different ages are for breast cancer. And you just knowing there are other people out there, and we've now got the internet, which actually supports that, and social media, which supports that. And I think that's amazing. Um, also have podcasts like You, Me, and the Big C, which you know, are talking yes. about the big topics in cancer. And I'm going to be talking to them soon and I think that for me it's been active it's been a being honest with my feelings and not just trying to brush it away be be able to share those feelings and a lot of people my mum keeps saying oh be positive my mum I have to feel my feelings otherwise I won't be able to deal with them and I've actually chosen to go down the therapist route because because this is the second time I've had um, breast cancer it brought up a lot of feelings I hadn't dealt with maybe the first time around just mm-hmm. because the, the knowledge wasn't there and maybe I didn't want to deal with it and I was quite young and now I'm ready to deal with some of those things um, and also just from the grieving perspective that I know that taking the tamoxifen may put me through medical menopause and when I come if I take it for five years when I come at the other end I may not pop out of medical menopause because I'll be heading towards a natural menopause so for me that's quite a big 
emotional grieving process and I'm always imagined that I would have a family and I'm not saying it's impossible I'm not saying it won't happen it's something I talk about with my doctors all the time um and you know they're like Tara if you you know meet someone you decide that's what you want to do then we will help you and we'll manage it but from a natural perspective it's it, it feels like it's less tangible right now and so for me that's been a difficult one and also just the thing like I've done all these right things why did I get cancer again that you know that's been emotionally hard too I work in this field I know it all I know it all I don't know it all. no one can know it all like I know you know as much as I know and there's always so much for me to learn and I, I spend so much time reading papers and talking to people but it is frustrating that I have the, a, at least a base knowledge and and I still you can't predict it it's, it's random you know cancer is a disease that is random in the way that you know we have dna mutations that just happen we have so many dna um replications that happen each day every day that sometimes they just don't they go wrong and in in my incidents um one or two of the cells were obviously left behind because i've had it it's in the same place so yeah i think i think that the mental health aspect is maybe something that people don't always appreciate i know that because you don't look ill necessarily because i don't look ill this time because i've only had only not only i've had surgery and then i've had i'm having the hormone treatment i don't know it's not like i'm having chemo my head's all falling out um so i think people then forget that you've been through this really massive thing because you just look kind of normal um and also like for me like going back to the gym and exercise and all of that stuff has been such an important part of recovery and all my doctors and everyone's like you know the more you exercise or fitter your body is the more you can bounce back and i think that's hugely important um and if every, it's different for every single person. But for me, um, making sure I can try and maintain some of my routine has, has definitely helped the mental health aspect. Because, you know, I could see my friends at the gym. I could just maintain it, even if I go and do a little bit. But I did see an exercise physiologist to help that. But I get that's not appropriate for everybody. So hopefully I've answered that question for you. No, you certainly have. Um, I just want to say thank you so much for sharing. It's wonderful to hear that those support networks are out there. For listeners, I'll put the um, the link to your podcast with you, me and the Big C and the World Cancer Research Fund recommendations in the show notes. Fantastic. Thank you. Just to echo what you said, it's you were so right that you can do everything right in life. And sometimes these things just happen. And it's important to realize that it's never your fault. For anyone listening who's been through a similar situation, you know, it's important not to blame yourself for these things. Absolutely. But... There's always things that you can do too, and I think that's where we have to just allow people to really take control of their own and take responsibility for the things they want to change. And that doesn't mean they have to change anything necessarily, but I think it does help. When you're in control, you do feel like you're working with the cancer treatment and not just sort of being passive. And for me, that's made a huge difference. And I know we're coming up on time. I just have a few more questions to you, which Please, I'll link yeah. back to um to what we've just spoken about how do you think healthcare i know we spoke about nutrition and how it's being linked into medicine now but how do you think healthcare can become more integrated what are your thoughts on that so i think we can provide our gps with more lifestyle medicine um, knowledge so that's nutrition exercise i think it'll be really interesting um to have health coaches maybe to do group sessions in GP practices because there'll be so X amount of people with diabetes, X amount of people in each practice with um, you know, cardiovascular disease. And I think 
you know, maybe having some sort of weekly groups, I think it'd be a really cost effective way of teaching people and looking at their diet, their looking at their exercise, looking at the, some of the other things they could change in their lifestyle, sleep, you know, stress, all of those things. That could be a really interesting way. Um, I really wish there were trained nutritionists um, at GP surgery practices and also exercise physiologists because I think that we basically all need to learn how to eat a little bit more healthier but still have it be tasty yes. and then um, also exercise more. And so for me, from with my background, I'm really passionate about cooking and eating. And I, if the way I approached food and nutrition for a long time was – Let's bring people in with the food and then teach them about nutrition. We'll sort of pull them in gently, gently with the food. And like, oh, this is really tasty. Let's eat this. And actually, and then explaining the nutrition. Because yes. people just weren't interested in learning nutrition straight up. Now it's the tide's turn and you know, people are really interested in nutrition. And sometimes I think they forget about the taste aspect and the social aspect of eating. And they're like, oh, we can only eat kale and like, you know, mushrooms and that's about it, you know, something. Um, and I think that this is where these kind of more peer support groups would potentially make a huge difference um again like do we need to have more sports and cooking lessons in schools and i think that again like if we could give people a base knowledge when then their formative years will it change their taste buds will it change how they behave i think so and i think limiting screen time we all need to limit screen time <laughs> so as much as there's a lot of knowledge out there i think that if we could provide would it be more after-school clubs? Would it be more sports after-school for children? Would it mean more cooking lessons? All of those things, where they're actually communicating with people around them, they're spending time with them, they're learning a valuable skill. I think that would be a lot better. Yes, absolutely. And just educating uh, people with those preventative measures. I think. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. What is the most important health change that you think you've made in your life? Big question. Um, I, yeah, I was just thinking a big question. I think I eat vegetables now at breakfast. Um, I, I think it's really easy for people to eat cereal and um, toast and all sorts of things at breakfast. But for me, if you're going to try and aim towards, you know, five or six or seven or eight, nine portions a day, you need to be starting early in the morning. And if you're not eating vegetables and fruits at breakfast, then you're going to have to eat a load at the end of the day. But having two or three portions first thing in the morning, and then at lunchtime, and then the evening. Even if you only have two portions at each meal, that's six, which is amazing. You know, yes. we're getting a lot more fiber. And given that we're all eating um, way less than the recommended amount, you know, we should be having 30 grams. I think that's probably one of the biggest differences. So my breakfasts now are quite protein and vegetable-based. So today I had um, kale sauteed with which sounds really odd but it was really delicious kale sauteed with um um kimchi and some mushrooms which are roasted in the, in the oven and topped with fried egg and sesame and it was it's very very savory umami rich but mm. packed nutrients and actually it was super tasty i was like oh I, i'd make this again it was it was a kind <laughs> of a random choice of things i was trying to cook up so i think that's the thing i'm thinking about advance so i know tomorrow i'm literally out from first thing until last thing at night. So I've literally prepared my meal. So for breakfast, I've just made a frittata with um, asparagus and goat's cheese and fennel. And, you know, 
and I've got chicken salad later. So just p- preparing. I, ma- I bought some ready-made hummus and to which I've added some za'atar and I've chopped up some vegetables. So I've got Sounds snacks. Beautiful. I know. Yeah, thank you. I know that I will probably end up having a coffee somewhere, maybe even have a cake because I know I've got a couple of meetings. So at least if I've got the healthy elements and I can just relax the rest of the day because I'm meeting a lot of people tomorrow. Mm-hmm. So I think it's a preparation aspect. Um, having vegetables at breakfast and then preparing food. So for me, I do meal prep. So I don't prepare full meals, but what I do is twice a week, I prepare up loads of vegetables. Because when you chop up one or two vegetables for one meal, it takes you at least 15, 20 minutes by the time you wash up the board. and da, da, da. So I chop up about six or seven and keep them ready. So whether they're roasted or pan fried or blanched or whatever, mm-hmm. or just prepared up, and I keep them ready. Because then even if you don't know what you fancy eating, you can make something from those vegetables. And I always keep frozen vegetables. Like waitress do these great frozen roast vegetables. Little do great chopped up peppers and stuff. And it just means it's really quick to add some vegetables to your meal. So those are my kind of go-to tips. Like just eat more vegetables and just be a little bit more prepared. So at least when you're caught out, you can just enjoy life. You, you basically answered my next question because you've provided so many tips so far. But I always try and leave the listeners with some actionable tips to help improve their health from today. So if you have three tips, I know it might be a repeat of the some that you've already mentioned. Um, for the listeners, could you please share them? Sure. So my first step is increase your number of fruits and vegetables you have a day. So ideally, you'd have five portions of vegetables and two portions of fruit. Um, and I would start off by having you know, two or three in the morning. And that doesn't mean it has to be like cooking random weird things like me, but like having um, even just like fried eggs with some tomatoes and mushrooms. That will work. You know, having a handful of berries at, you know, at tea time, things like that. Second thing is really focus on having good sleep routine so for me that involves like shutting down my kind of blue screen devices about 90 minutes before having a shower like dimming the lights reading an actual book and just making sure i get some good quality sleep um the third thing is find something that helps you you know with stress relief and calms you down so for me i am actually really getting into meditation um, and I've tried lots of different types, and that's really helping me. And the days I don't meditate, I always feel it. And even when I feel like I've got too busy to meditate, I try and find two minutes on the tube where I can just shut my eyes and just do just two minutes or two minutes of just focused breathing. So those are my three health tips. They're not nutrition-based necessarily, but hopefully they're based towards a more kind of integrative lifestyle. Thank you for sharing those. And Toral, it's been an absolute pleasure to have you on the show. Thank you for sharing all of your stories. Um, I'm sure they will resonate with some of the listeners. But before you go, can you please tell the listeners where they can find you and what new projects you have coming up? Great. So you can find me on Instagram at The Urban Kitchen or Twitter at Urban Kitchen um, on Facebook. Um, new projects involving... Um, what the health, which where we discuss all different elements of health and we're looking at stress relief, sleep, menopause, motherhood, men's health, all sorts of things. Um, There are lots of cooking classes and workshops where we look at nutrition to help prevent disease, how we can help 
reduce the risk of disease by what we eat and and also some lifestyle tips and there are lots of workshops like that all over the year there's books there's some supper clubs and all sorts of fun stuff so just follow me on social media and you'll be able to find out more about those i will list all your social media links in the show notes for all the listeners toral it's been an absolute pleasure to have you on the conversation that we've had today has been eye-opening and you have been truly inspirational i do hope that we can speak again soon Look forward to it. Take care, Ben. Lovely to speak to you. Thank you for listening to the Functional Health Podcast. You can find links to everything that we talked about today in the show notes. If you have a second, please consider leaving a five-star rating on iTunes. It really does make a huge difference and helps get this valuable information out and reach more people. Don't forget to subscribe so you can stay up to date and know whenever I release a new episode. You can connect with us on Instagram, Facebook or our website and all questions are welcome. As always, thanks to Joss Aurelia for the editing and Alan Harper for his support.